This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. Welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Danielle Henderson. And we are back with you fine, fine folks to talk a little bit about film. What's up? Or a lot of bit. I got a lot of bit to say this week. God, girl, I do too. I'm actually (laughs) really rare to go. And it's not because I drank this 42 ounce double latte. Okay, we are mind melding right now because I have an extra large Dunkin' Donuts coffee right next to me. I love it. Just do sometimes it's like when it's so big, they put like the double band, the double hot yeah. band. What is it called? I like hot band. I think they call it a sleeve, but I'm now calling it hot band forever. But can you give me one of those hot bands? Yo, let me get two of them hot bands. It's sometimes the coffee is so big and hot that they give me a double hot band. So now I know it's a sleeve. Okay. They look at you and they're like, she cannot be trusted to not scald herself with one flimsy sleeve. We need to give her two hot bands. She doesn't look like she has the attention span or the energy to sue anyone. But in the event that it happens, we'll give her two. Dunkin' Donuts does not care. They're like, go ahead, burn yourself. We know you'll be back. Do whatever you want. (laughs) Remember I told, I revealed many episodes ago that I used to work at Dunkin' Donuts. I worked there. That was my first job. Yes. 15 years old. And we actually don't think we had hot bands back in the day. There were no no sleeves in the 90s. There still aren't. I hate to break it to you. There still are no sleeves. At Dunkin', there's not? (laughs) Not at my Dunkin'. Wow. They might occasionally give you that little plug for the top. Oh, yeah. The little, um, what is that little charm? I call it like a little charm thing. Hot hot bands and charms, everybody. (laughs) Millie is up on the lingo. (laughs) When you say charm, I'm like, is she saving them and making a necklace? Is this like Pandora finally has some competition? It's weird because I (laughs) truly always forget what it is when it cu- the cup comes out and it has that little plug thing because it looks like a little goblin or something. It's like some kind of thing. <laughs> and I'm like, ooh, they're putting a little a little charm on here, a little flare. And then I realize I pull it up. I'm like, oh, it's so that the liquid doesn't come out of the hole. You're like, can I have a, a hot band and a goblin claw, please? <laughs> Let's keep this all together so I don't spill any of this. Shit. Give me one of those uh, goblin claws. <laughs> So you're telling me they got goblins at Dunkin'. They got goblins. But no sl- no hot bands. <laughs> they do not give a fuck about how hot. They're like, it's hot coffee. Like, get over it. It's Dunkin'. You know what you're going to get when you come in here. Come on, people. America runs. <laughs> Th- these people don't have time to get goblins and hot bands. They're just, they're literally running. They're running to us and running from us afterwards. So I think we've just cracked the code for what might be wrong with America. <laughs> I know a lot of people do that thing where they're like, David Bowie died and then the earth went to shit. I truly wonder if somebody will go back in time to when Duncan started using that phrase, America runs on Duncan. 
And then if we could also see a sharp decline in our cultural values. Well, remember they used to have the Mario and Luigi looking dude who was the baker. That was their steez for a long time. And then they were like, this guy's life is too depressing. We don't want to focus on it. We're going to do the opposite. We're going to make it like healthy. We're running. I fucking love that dude. They need to bring that dude back because I never wanted to drink coffee. I didn't start drinking coffee until I was 35. What? And I truly think. What? Yeah, when I was in grad school. Yeah. Never drank coffee for two reasons. One, the coffee in my home growing up was Folgers, which is just gut rot. Those instant crystal Folgers that my grandmother drinks to this day. Mm, mm. And I'm like, this is not where it's at. I even knew that as a 10-year-old. And those fucking commercials. I'm like, this man is so sad with his life. He hates donuts. He hates coffee. Why would anybody do this to themselves? This man is depressing. Oh, my God. Here's the thing. That guy and the Micro Machines guy, I thought, were like the same (laughs) dude for like 10 years. Definitely cousins. Yeah. And I'm like... There was something about that in our childhood where, like, mustachioed middle-aged men were in charge of, like, all the things on TV. Oh, yeah. They, they threw a mustache on everybody. <laughs> I'm surprised they didn't throw a mustache on fucking B. Arthur. They're like, everyone gets a mustache. It's the 80s. Your comforter has a mustache. <laughs> but that Duncan guy truly was depressing. Like, yeah. it was literally the, the whole commercial for anyone who is not, like, 105 years old and hasn't seen these commercials. It was basically like a dude that the commercial was a dude having to get up super early in the morning. I guess his wife's in there. And he's just like, time to make the donuts. <sighs> and it's all he said. He never said his name. He never said where he worked. He never even said what kind of donuts. His whole ethos was time to make the donuts, and he hated it. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, having made donuts in my life, you do have to wake up early because usually those places open early. So you got to go earlier. Hell yeah. Sometimes four in the morning if you're a baker. And so a a lot of people who are bakers work in the middle of the night. Or if you're this guy, you wake up, I don't know, probably like 5 a.m. And he's just like... Time to make the donuts. Like half asleep. He's not high on his own supply. He's like not drinking coffee. Yeah. And then he'd be pushing those trays in the oven and be like, time to make the donuts. And then he'd be making the coffee. Time to make the donuts. And I'm like, damn, son. But it's almost like he hated doing it. Do you know what I'm saying? Like almost. He totally hated it. Today they'd be like, he loves it. He fucking loves his Paycheck to paycheck life where he has to wake up super early and he's in his 50s. This man loves not having health insurance above all. He loves union busting. That's every commercial today is someone doing a fucking swing dance around some minimum wage fucking job. It's like so it's so demoralizing because when you actually work at those places, as we have done, you're like, there's nothing about this that rings true. Like you want the world to think we're so happy to give you your fucking venti mocha. <laughs> Meanwhile, we're back here slinging 25 pound bags of beans and listening to some bitch come in and be like, oh, my latte foam is not thick enough. 
And, and you're like, great, I've been up since four or fucking clock in the morning. I have to go to school after this. I have no health insurance. <laughs> My sneakers are worn out. If you work in those places, you have intimate experience with wearing out your sneakers. You know when the last time was that I wore out a pair of sneakers? When I worked in a fucking cafe. Oh my God. When I worked in a fucking bakery. Let me just tell you. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to go down this memory lane of working at, at a donut place in my teen years. But I, I used to wear Vans to work. No art support. No art support, girl. I, I think about that now and I'm like, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> I know this now because I started weightlifting, but basically they tell you to wear Vans to weightlift because it's as close to being barefoot on the floor as you can get in a shoe. Yep. So basically, no arch support. No, no, nothing. It doesn't protect your foot at all. But I, I used to wear Vans. They're the Fred Flintstone of shoes. Exactly. And whenever I would get out of work... I would have hard, crusty dough and frosting on my vans. And I used to have to take like those spackle things like (laughs) intimately. Yes. Yes. I'm sure you do. (laughs) A homeowner. But I used to go into the garage and take one of those things and just like scrape hardened Boston cream filling from my van so I could wear those shoes to school because I wore them to school, too, which is gross. But I'm just saying. I wish we could bring back a depressing commercial. Because remember, even during like the beginning of COVID when they're like, we're all in this together. I wish we had more commercials that were like, life is fucking miserable. Give me one Oreo commercial. One Oreo commercial that's like, you know what? Your kids suck the life out of you. Your job is hateful. Your partner, after spending two years in a house with your partner, you might not want to be with them anymore. That's why you're going to eat this whole bag of Oreos. (laughs) There was this other commercial too when we were growing up. I don't remember if you knew this one. It was for Western Union, where basically it was that song that everybody needs somebody. Yeah. And it was like people like <laughs> fucking crashing their cars inside of like office buildings and like like the shittiest things would happen to people. And they're like Western Union. Like some it would the whole commercial was you fucked up. Somebody's gotta send you money to get out of that shit. I remember those commercials. It would be like a washing machine overflowing with bubbles, like shaking itself loose off the ground. And I would look at those look at those commercials and be like, who's sending you money for this, first of all? This is a you problem. And now you're making it someone else's problem. They would never do that shit today. Today it would be like, the Western Union commercial would be like somebody like, when you're just wanting to say hello. And it would be like... <laughs> A grandma going to fucking the gas station to send a Western Union tell just for fun. <laughs> just for fun. They would never have like a person crashing a car into a building and somebody being like, oh, better send union. <laughs> like this motel that you drove into is collapsing. And now you need some fucking person in your family to send you cash. It's so depressing. Now it's going to be like a white girl at Coachella getting a Western Union Venmo-style text so she can buy more ecstasy. When you're in the desert doing pills. (laughs) When you need VIP access to stand next to Paris Hilton for 10 seconds while a Kanye West hologram is going buck on stage. Western Union. Okay, here's the deal. I'm trying to recap the highlights of the last like 10 minutes of this conversation. And it was that you weren't a coffee drinker till you were 35. We're jacked up on giant lattes with no hot bands. 
And now I'm trying to think of what. Oh, but and also, oh, don't forget, we have re-evaluated the state of commercials <laughs> and decided they should be way more depressing. <laughs> Stop trying to sell us on this jump, jive, and whale version of life. Let's bring depressing 80s commercials back with middle-aged people who do not want to go to work and yes. do not want to send money to people who have crashed their cars. And let's get rid of all the other crap. Like, listen, Super Bowl was a few weeks ago. I don't know if you watched all those commercials. Hell no. There's, there was literally a famous person in every commercial at this point. Oh my God. Commercials exist only for famous people to not appear in Marvel movies. I think that's what the messaging is. Jesus Christ. I could not have watched the Super Bowl less. And here's here's where I get really like weirdly political is I'll hear people online all year long being like, yeah, fuck the police and fuck this and do that and be more active and be a better person and be socially responsible. And then they watch the Super Bowl. Yeah. And I'm like, what what are you doing? <laughs> like, why, why are those two things still completely incongruous to you that you're supporting a whole organization that is against everything you stand for? Very true. Like, I'm sure it was cool to see Dr. Dre and Snoop and... Eminem and all those people up on stage, but I would rather pay to see their concert than watch the fucking Super Bowl. Yeah. Well, I don't have, I have zero skin in the game because I'm not a football person. So, yeah, you know, me either. I'm just, all I do is eat snacks with whoever else is watching it. Right. Right. But now it's like an event in and of itself. And that's yeah. something that I knew they were a big deal when we were kids, certainly. But like now it's like, a really big deal, like where people are really, really excited to see the commercials in a way that I just didn't think was possible in late stage capitalism. However, the commercials now are no, there's no normal people in a commercial for the Super Bowl. It's like literally only <coughs> famous people. And so now I'm like, we're never going to get a depressing 80s style commercial again because they won't even let God. normal people be in fucking commercials. And they definitely won't let celebrities just be depressed. Oh, my God. Trying to sell you something. Hell no. Can you imagine if John Cena was a fucking donut guy <laughs> that was like in a 32-year marriage with the same woman? They were living in like a apartment building in Jersey and he made donuts for a living and he had to get up and literally just like put a shirt on and just be like time to make donuts can you imagine if they they would never let him do that no one on the team that he has hired would ever <laughs> let him do that but how great would it be i want to see cardi b just like <laughs> laying down on a couch on her side shoveling doritos into her face and just being like nah y'all and that's the whole commercial Doritos, get some. <laughs> like, just meet, just meet us where we live a little bit. Yeah, they probably would do that, but it would be very glamorous. Yes. She wouldn't have like squeezed off a few zits, and now she's got like marks that are gonna last for a week and a half. She wouldn't be pulling any of those Doritos like off of her chest to eat, <laughs> like the crumbs, or even like you know, I'll say, I'll, look, I'll take it a step further and show you just how disgusting I am off the couch. When you miss your mouth sometimes and they just drop to the couch and you're like, I'm still eating it. And she's doing it with her dog sitting behind her <laughs> and she farts and then the dog gives her a little kick to be like, come on. You definitely need a judgmental pet behind any celebrity that we have doing this commercial. Just smashed in between the butt and the back of the couch. 
And there's like a nest around the bottom of the couch, which is like magazines, books, remotes, because you know you haven't left that couch for three days. Give me a nest and some Dorito crumbs and like no makeup and zit cream and a judgmental pet. That's what I want out of commercials nowadays. They need to get like less blank in there making these fucking realistic, depressing celebrity commercials because it's like, come on, look, look where we came from. The fucking Dunkin' Donuts dude in terms of like the he was famous, like he was a famous clinically <laughs> depressed person. And we we were like, oh, my God, I cannot wait to go eat donuts and drink a shit ton of coffee. Yeah. You know, they made so much money. They made so much money with that. Come on, guys. Yeah. Even if you're just looking at it from a capitalistic point of view, we all ran out because we related to that motherfucking dude. Or like me, you're like, I don't want that life. I already got enough of this going on in my own life as someone who was clinically depressed for most of her teens, all of her 20s and a healthy part of her 30s. But that's all I want. All I want is is if I have to look at commercials, I want to watch a commercial and have the end result be me saying, that was it. <laughs> <laughs> like that, that was it. <laughs> yeah. I need it as close to boring and my life as possible. And then, then I might buy some product. Okay. But in the meantime, we've got our coffees. I have no idea what this episode is going to be like today because we are completely <laughs> caffeinated to the point of no return. I was excited before. Like, I was excited on the hours coming to the podcast and then when I just, like, got juiced. Yeah. And now I'm a rocket ship into space, so. And you you guys can't see this, but the whole time Millie's been talking, she's been, like, pumping a 10-pound weight, like a kettlebell weight above her head. <laughs> like, she's pumped on caffeine. This is a huge <laughs> lift right here. We're, we're blasting the fucking delts and tries today. <laughs> all right. So I don't know how this is going to transition at all to our theme, but we got to talk about it. It's not. <laughs> but we're going to make it. Work. So we were doing two weeks of um, women filmmakers in celebration of Women's History Month. That's right. And so this is our second episode. Last week, we did a couple of really great movies. We did Cleo from 5 to 7 with Agnes Varda, Gas Food Launching, Allison Anders. And now we got two more. Two more we do. fucking hugely influential filmmakers. Why don't you tell them the real theme for this week? So the theme is, actually, it's woman. And there are a couple of reasons for that. Yes. And before you start even on the why only two weeks, because we feature movies by and about and for women all year long. <laughs> Duh. We really do. But we wanted to mark the occasion. And part of the reason we chose this theme is because we, we realized we both had chosen movies with girl in the title. And it's one of my personal pet peeves when somebody calls me girl, because I'm not. Mm. And I haven't been for over 30 years. Yeah. And it's one of those things where it's like, it's not the compliment you think it is. So just in thinking about, you know, who gets to identify as a girl and like how that can be kind of a language that's used to diminish women more than it is to raise women up. I just kind of threw this out at Millie and she was she was on board. Definitely. Because I think with both of these films, it's kind of that thing of like the character in question is technically maybe a girl in some aspects, like age wise. But it's moved beyond that simple concept, I guess, is the best way to put it, because right. it's complicated. And young women a lot of times have to be older for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times are actually, in, in your case, alone, yeah. like truly alone and sort of 
like taking care of themselves and like living their own life, which you know, is a very adult thing. And so it's that concept of sort of like, yes, we're girls, but we also have to be women too, in a lot of ways. Right. We put we push them into that position. I think that is a beautiful way to take this theme away from my personal pet peeve <laughs> and into a nicer space <laughs> that means more. Well, and the funny thing is, is that I think I call you girl at the beginning of the episode. And I did not mean that in that way, if you know what I'm saying. I did not mean to debase you in any way. I was saying it as as a friend. No, you didn't. I'm just saying that I, I like that this has several different layers. I like that this is a theme that you can approach in, in several different ways. Yeah. I'm really excited to talk about your movie. First watch for me. <laughs> was Again. it really? Hell yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> I don't know what happened to me in the 2000s. I missed literally every movie. That was made after 2000. I'm going to say part of it probably has to do with your job. (laughs) I'm just throwing that out there as a possibility that you work for a literal classic movie channel. Okay. I swear to God, if we go back to all the episodes where you picked a movie from the 2000s or later, it's a first time watch for me. I swear. Always. Always. And like I said, I don't know why. Because these are perfectly fine movies. They are great movies. And I I just missed them. I think you were inadvertently, even though we hadn't even discussed the concept of this pod yet, this pod was years later down the road. I think you were inadvertently setting yourself up for us so that I could introduce you to movies. You were like, you know what? One day I'm going to have a friend who is going to show me all of these movies and make me talk about them. Yes. And I appreciate that because here's the thing. (laughs) Like, I got the old shit covered. You know me. (laughs) So it's like we work well in that way. Completely. If you haven't seen a movie from like the 40s or 50s, I'll help you. If I haven't seen something from the 2000s or later, (laughs) typically stressful, as is your brand in these movies, always introducing me to stressful films. (laughs) From the 2000s or later, but I, you got me. So I love that. I love that we can help each other out. Wonderful. Well, I'm pumped. Yes. And I feel like we should just get into it. Yeah, because you're going first. And my pick for our theme of Actually, It's Woman was a film that was released in 2014. It was written and directed by Anna Lily Amirpour, and it's called A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. This movie is so crucial for everyone to watch. Mm. I love this movie so much for several different reasons. And before I get into like my one sentence synopsis or we start talking about it, I just want to set it up about what it actually is. So it has been described as an Iranian vampire spaghetti Western, which is true, even though some of those words you feel like will not work together. It absolutely works because Anna Lily Amirpour is a fucking genius. <laughs> and this movie is so unique. It is so interesting. It's truly brilliant. And it's fresh. Like you do not know what's coming at any point. It's like nothing you have ever seen. And Something that I really love about this movie is that it's really hard to place in time when you first start watching it, but that's intentional. So you're kind of already, from the minute the movie starts, kind of like, what's going on? And I love movies like that, where I don't have to instantly feel... I mean, I I do like a comforting watch that, you know, walks you through every step of the way, 
But it's so rare that you get to see a newer movie that just feels completely fresh. And so I just appreciate the hell out of this movie for that. I think that Anna Lily Amirpour is, she's kind of reinventing film by doing this mashup of genres in this film. And the other thing I wanted to look up, because I think it's important, because I've seen the film described in different ways, is I wanted to look up the difference between Persian and Farsi as a language. Mm -hmm. Because the movie is in Farsi. And the difference is that Persian is what we call it in the English-speaking world, and Farsi is how native speakers refer to it. So, as per usual, we ruin everything. (laughs) It doesn't come from this fucking white capitalist society um, by calling it something it's not. Mm. Uh, But that is, if you were at all curious about the difference, I don't think it's particularly offensive to use either one, but I just personally wanted to know because I'd seen it described in so many different ways when I was reading through interviews and articles. I kind of wanted to nail down, like, what was the difference? So getting into my one-sentence synopsis. Bring it. A lonely, self-employed vampire with a strong moral compass has her world disrupted when she meets a hot catnapper with a past. Perfect. Perfection! (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of weird how all vampires are self-employed, unless you're watching what we do in the shadows. Like, every vampire is a freelancer. (laughs) Right? (laughs) This might be the big takeaway from this episode, (laughs) is the the idea that vampires are freelancers. But what are they freelancing for? They're freelancing for blood and rent. Okay. So it's more, it's, they're they're like a sole proprietorship type of thing. Yeah. Okay. Unless you're watching what we do in the shadows and they all have jobs. But for for the most part, vamps are freelancers. I dare you guys to send us messages if you know of any vampires who have jobs besides the vampires from what we do in the shadows. Please let us know. I saw what you did, pod at gmail.com. Especially if they work at a donut shop. (laughs) 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 Anyway, I had to say that's like one of the funniest concepts I've ever had to think about. Thank you. (laughs) You're you're welcome. I'm happy to do it. Happy to do it to you every time. (laughs) And I say that this vampire has a strong moral compass because she only tends to eat quote unquote bad people. Mm. So the, the real summary of this film is that and, and, and again, it's so interesting that I don't want to ruin it for anyone by discussing some of the intricacies of what's going on. But I will say that the people that you meet in the beginning of the film are all important to the narrative and their lives intertwine throughout. So it's this really cool take on boy meets girl movies, westerns, horror. But it's, again, in that narrative sense, she's really stringing you along and you still don't know what's going to happen, even though you've met all of the key players. Right. Which, again, to me, touch of brilliance. I was reading an interview on Electric Sheep, which came out in May of 2015. And I was just really curious about like how this movie came to be and what Anna Lily Amarpour had to say about her own work. And this is a direct quote from her. So I think this is a dark fairy tale, and it's a place of my mind. I'm part Iranian and part American and born in England, and it's like a soup of so many things. What's so awesome about the film is that it doesn't have any loyalty to the real world, and it doesn't have to. It's like a dream. It's just consistent to itself. And I thought that was a really smart way to think about your your own work. Yeah. Because it is, again, fresh, exciting, new. Love this movie. Our main character, or one of the main characters in this film, is simply called The Girl. Mm -hmm. And The Girl is the vampire. And the other thing I thought was so 
cool about this movie is the girl wears a chador, which is such a cool choice. <laughs> and again, in that same Electric Sheep interview, Amirpour describes it as a brilliant disguise. And I quote, no one is going to expect it from her. For me, it was just because I put one on. I had one as a prop in a movie and put it on for the first time. It felt like a stingray. I instantly felt like a creature. It moves and it's made of a different kind of fabric. It's very soft and it catches the wind and it's beautiful. And I just felt like a badass. And then I thought, this would be an Iranian vampire. This is it. It's this girl. Mm -hmm. So cool. And again, I looked this up because I was just interested in it. And the chador, it covers the head and body, but leaves the face visible. And you've probably heard about a bunch of different garments worn by Muslim women. And there are several. And I just kind of wanted to, again, get some more information. And they're all so different. So I just looked up the look and the definition of, and how they're all different. The chador is floor length, like it covers your whole body. The hijab is one that you probably see more often than not. And it's, you know, again, covers the head, but not the face. The burqa covers your whole face and body. And then there's also one that's called a kaimar, which is like a waist length, I believe. So the hijab is kind of like shoulder length, but the kaimar is waist length. So again, just thinking about all these differences, because when you're looking at movies that are made by people who are culturally from someplace other than you are, you have to do your due deference to kind of figure out why some of the moves are important in the story they're telling. And everything is intentional. That's the thing. Like with most creators, most directors, they're making these intentional moves. And the more that you can learn about the culture that they're trying to display, the more that you can learn about how the movie works. Yeah, I actually looked that up too. Nice. Yeah, I did. So, Because uh, I was curious, and I'm glad that you explained it because I think it's a big part of this film. So it was good information to know. Thanks. <laughs> I also I also just have to take a moment to point out another very interesting choice because when you meet one of the characters, his name is Saeed, and he's referred to as the pimp or the drug dealer. Oof. And I was like, this dude looks so wild. And it reminded me of that guy from D Ant Ward. Remember back like 10 years ago when you were all jamming to D Ant Ward? <laughs> and then <laughs> that South African like rap. <laughs> rap group. We don't know what happened to them, but we're going to find out. Okay. Uh, we got to talk about the pimp. Okay. Because he is so that band mixed with like a kind of Guy Ritchie movie dude. Like they had yes. the tracksuit. He had the word sex tattooed across his neck. Which like, damn, I love getting boned. But do I love getting boned? Because <laughs> I would never make that choice. I mean, I was like, I, I know the kids rock some weird tattoos these days, like the face stuff, what have you. But writing the word sex across the Adam's apple, I don't know. That seems like a poor choice. Well, he also had a Pac-Man going down his neck, eating some pellets. <laughs> and I'm like, this is just a very confusing mix of like, what, what are you trying to say about yourself and the world? with your body art, sir. It was a lot. Yeah. And then I read about it and she absolutely modeled that dude on Ninja from Deant War. God, I knew it. Because <laughs> I'm like, this is too specific and wild a look. Yeah. It has to be. It has Hilarious. to be. So yeah, there's this, this incredible cast of characters. You've got the girl who's the vampire, Arash, who is this very cool young dude who we'll find out more about later. Hossein, 
is his dad, who's also referred to as the junkie, Atti, who is the sex worker. And the actress that plays Atti, Mojan Marno, is also on the blacklist. So if you watch this movie and you've ever been forced to spend a Sunday afternoon with like your grandparents, you probably know that. I didn't because I have not seen the blacklist. My grandmother is usually watching Naked and Afraid. <laughs> uh, you have Saeed, who's the pimp. And then Shada is the princess. There is a little cute kid who's who's referred to as his character name is the street urchin, uh, Milad Ekbali. And then there's Matsuka, the cat, who you don't think is going to have such a pivotal role, but ends up being a big old deal in this movie. Yes. And they all live in Bad City, which is a place that has like a very rundown, forgotten feel. And the way that the story is propelled, because again, This is such an interesting movie that I don't want to ruin any part of it for you. So I'll tell you how the story is kind of set up. And it's basically that Arash is living with his father, Hossein, in this very small space. Um, His mother's passed away. And Hossein is a junkie. He's addicted to heroin. And when he can't pay his drug dealer, Saeed, Saeed takes Arash's prized possession, which is his car. And it's this very 50s-looking, like, cool car. Arash responds by going downstairs and punching a wall and, like, breaking his hand. And just just from me to you, never punch a wall. Always palm it. Like, you can slap a wall real hard and get that energy out. Don't punch a wall, especially if it's a brick wall. Okay. Get serious. Who is going to slap a wall? I'm slapping walls all day. I'll slap a wall right now, all day in this place. (laughs) When I'm like, oh, I have how many animals in my attic? I'm slapping walls. Because if I punch it, I'm putting a hole in it, and that's a whole different process. I'm just saying, the energy expelled is not as satisfying to slap a wall. Like, I understand why people want to punch, and I understand why you're telling people not to punch. But slapping a wall does not feel as satisfying. I'm just throwing it out there. I'm just going to say, punching a wall, super misogynistic. Slapping a wall, you're in the clear, baby. Wow, you went there. Just an emotional expression. Okay. (laughs) Okay. You're heard. You've been heard. Yes. Slap those walls. Just try it. Just try slapping a wall. Slap the wall. Like if you're walking down the street with your friends going to dinner, slap a wall and see what they say. And I I guarantee all of them will be on Millie's side. Like, what the shit was that? (laughs) But I just want to know that it's an option for you to slap a wall. (laughs) But he doesn't. Arash punches the wall and breaks his fucking hand. Now this drug dealer, Saeed, has his car. And while he's in the car with Ati, the sex worker, he sees this dark figure in the rear view. And then later on, he meets that dark figure, who is the girl. He takes her home. And then she fucking kills and robs him <laughs> after what is one of the creepiest entrances I've ever seen into an apartment. Like, it is just creepy. I really want to talk to you about this because, you know, we talked a lot about, like, vampire lore, vampire stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Every movie is different. You know, when we talked about Ganjin Hess, their vampire stuff much different than Bella Lugosi style, okay? Yes. Thoughts on those, like, retractable switchblade vampire teeth? I love those. Because yeah. this is the other thing about this film that I really dig. It doesn't have a ton of dialogue. Yeah. And so the stuff that is telegraphed about vampirism is subtle. Yeah. And there's this point where they're, like, looking at each other. He's dancing up to her and thinking they're about to bone. And then she just has these little tiny fangs just kind of yeah. flip down and I'm like, why did he stick around when those fangs dropped? She fucking warned you, buddy. See, that's why. That's because he's got sex written across his neck. 
there was a moment where I thought that too. I was like, he's going to be shitting his pants. I'm like, no, no, no. He's got sex written across his neck. He's like, yo, I'm into it. He also just did like four lines of coke. Yeah, yeah. I was like, he's like, I'm doing my finger trick where I'm going to put my finger in somebody's mouth, which is disgusting, by the way. I don't know. As a move. Horrible. Don't put your nasty finger in my mouth. Like, come on. That's like you licking my eyeball as a come on. And you can tell it's his move because he did it several times to several people. Yes. And when he puts the finger up right next to her mouth and, and then he sees those retractable switchblade fangs, you see his eyes in that, which I think is a great technique that the director does, where you can see him like processing the information of him going, what the <laughs> fuck? Oh, wait a second. I'm kind of into this. Like, <laughs> I got sex right across my neck. Ah! <laughs> He's like, this could be hot. I've never had a fang fuck before. <laughs> and then she's like, and you still won't, because I'ma eat you. That's what these fangs are about. <laughs> Slap the wall. Slap the wall. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Slap that wall. And I love it because she eats him and then she robs him. And you kind of get just in that moment, that very quick moment, an idea of what her life is. Yeah. Like this is how she survives, not just with the blood stuff. But she robs him, and then later on we do see like a pile of jewels and, you know, a pile of watches in her apartment. And you're like, that's how she pays for this apartment. Like, it's very subtle, and I love it because yes. it helps keep you in the story because you're not thinking about the vampire stuff. Exactly. So Arash goes to get his car back, goes to this apartment, sees Saeed is dead, and not only does he get his car, but he takes the drug suitcase and starts a new life for himself as a dealer. He's like... Got to make that money to pay off all this stuff, so... And the inadvertently cool thing about it is that now that he is the drug dealer, he's not going to get his own dad high. So his dad is, like, going through withdrawals because his drug dealer has been murdered and his son has all the gear. Right. So very, very cool. Again, subtle, subtle moves. And, you know, Arash is into this lifestyle and he's having a good time and he goes to this party and sees one of his former landscaping clients who gives him one of his own ecstasy pills. And while he's high on his own supply, he meets the girl. He meets the vampire. And the next thing you know, he's he's snugging a vamp. He's snuggling up with a vamp and all hell breaks loose. I got to tell you, like, this movie is obviously very beautiful and very cinematic and it's yes. gorgeous black and white. That party scene, it's... Post ecstasy, basically, when he's like in his own feelings and he's he's high and he's just kind of hanging out, dressed as Dracula, which I think is a nice touch, right? Beautiful. That whole sequence of like where he meets the girl and they like go home together is so sexy. Yes. It's such a sexy piece of filmmaking. It truly is. And it's like you said, the way that it's filmed, and I know that you can look this up on your own, but there were, again, a lot of intentional moves made by Anna Lily Armour-Poor. And one of the things that she used was like a very specific kind of lens to give depth to the scene or to all the scenes, really, to the whole film. And it's just gorgeous. It is so gorgeous and slow and like sexy and like you're never seeing P and V, <laughs> but like there's just... It's just sexy. That's what I I just love it. Yeah. And the other thing I wanted to add is that at one point we see the girl kind of lightly terrorizing the street urchin child. And she takes his skateboard when he leaves it behind as he runs away from her in fear. And so you get to see all of these beautiful scenes of her on a skateboard with the chador. It is like ethereal. Yeah. 
gorgeous. And is it true that the director is a skateboarder? Like, is it, doesn't she know how to skateboard? She knows how to skate. Yeah. She knows how to skate. So I don't know if the actress did. The actress who plays the girl is Sheila Vand. And I don't know, but she learned. Yeah. <laughs> or she had enough skills to get on that board and push herself down a street. But it's just so cool because, again, like you see these moments of, I don't know if it was around the time this film came out or later, but since I've seen this film, I've also been seeing like documentaries about Iranian girls who skateboard and use it as like a form of social justice and a form of like breaking gender boundaries. And awesome. so when you look at something like this and then you look at these videos of what's happening with in real life with girls in Iran, and then you're looking at things like Persepolis. Like there is such a theme of punk, yeah. like absolute punk territorial like rejection of the norm. And I think it's important for people to remember that that like kids are kids everywhere. And the way they're able to exhibit some of these things might be different, but kids are kids everywhere. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I just, I really dig all those scenes with her on the skateboard. And there's this one scene where she's on the skateboard and kind of like pulling herself along a wall. And it's just, it's gorgeous. So the things that I noticed this time around about the film, and I'm not going to get too much into the plot after this, because again, don't want to ruin anything. But the things that I noticed that I thought were really cool on this watch is when the girl is leaving the store, when you first see the girl, there's this image graffitied on the side of the building of a figure with a dark cloak and a white face. And it's completely unsaid, but just from that image and watching her leave this store, there's this feeling that her lore precedes her and that everyone in this town is kind of aware of a dark force or knows that there's something to be afraid of. So I kind of dug that. And I also really like that both Saeed and Ati have evil eyes hanging on their apartment walls. So Saeed has one, Ati has two, but it doesn't keep the vampire from entering their space. Mm. So it implies that either the girl is not evil or that safety is an illusion yeah. and nothing will actually protect you. So I just, again, like notice those two things and I'm like, oh God, this movie just has so many layers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, it's beautiful. And it's just oddly creepy. Like there's a scene where she follows and mimics Hossein. Mm -hmm. And it's so truly creepy. And I love I laughed my ass off at that scene this time because I'm like, Ati just fucking leaves. She sees this, <laughs> she sees this bitch across the street and she's like, goodbye. <laughs> and she's out of there. But he's like freaked out, but also intrigued. And I think that's part of the charm of this character is that, yeah, she's creepy, but she's also deeply intriguing. And something that's really odd when you first meet her is that. When you see what her space looks like, she lives in this basement apartment, and all of her posters are from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. So it's a very cool way to telegraph that she's been around for a long time without having to dial into exactly how long, yeah. which is something that like disrupts a lot of the vampire stories that we were just discussing. Yeah, this movie is so interesting to me because of the sort of multi-genre thing that's happening. Because, you know, vampire film, horror in general, but specifically vampire movies have a long tradition, as we've talked about in previous episodes. And the way that they communicate the vampire lore is always different. And in this movie, it's also different. But then I really glommed on to the spaghetti Western part of this film. Because mm. like I have also mentioned in previous episodes, I'm a huge fan of Westerns. I developed it later in life because I used to think Westerns were kind of boring as a kid. But then I, I started to <laughs> understand them more as I got older. And spaghetti Westerns in particular is an offshoot 
of the kind of traditional American Western that we kind of know about, you know, and have known about forever. There's a lot of differences. I mean, there's the obvious difference, which is that they were made outside of America and they were typically made in Italy, right. which is why they're called spaghetti westerns. Not not culturally insensitive at all. <laughs> <laughs> we're like, it's Persian and they're spaghetti westerns. Fucking deal with it. We're going to have to figure that one out. We're going to put that on the list. But part of what the tradition, I think, of the spaghetti western versus the American western is that they're very highly stylized. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of traits to them that are a little bit different, but they are very highly stylized. They're made outside of America. The hero is typically more of an anti-hero, not like a kind of pure good guy in that kind of American Western kind of way. But then it uses a lot of it's very very highly stylized and uses a lot of like music cues, which is what I think really makes this film a spaghetti Western in that very specific way, which is like the music in this movie is fucking great. The soundtrack is fire. Yeah. And like. Here you have this girl, right? Girl slash woman who is an antihero because she's a vampire, mm-hmm. right? Like she's doing sort of quote unquote good things, right? She's, you know, essentially killing bad people yep. and maybe not always, but, you know, for the most part, you know, the people that she does kill are typically bad people, but it's complicated, yep. right? And also on top of that, the idea that she lives by herself And she's kind of mysterious and she has a lot of like lore around her, like you just said. That's, I think, a very, you know, kind of later period Western, like revisionist Western spaghetti Western thing. And I love that about this film. And I love that there's like a lot of those like spaghetti Western kind of close ups on the face. And Mm -hmm. I was reading that Anna Lily Amirpour grew up partially in Bakersfield, California. Yes. Which I think is really interesting because I, this movie, as much as I read that it was filmed in California, mm-hmm. but it's obviously like people are speaking Farsi and it's obviously featuring Iranian actors. It's that loneliness of the spaghetti Western hero, like you said, is different from the American Western hero. And I know that, again, reading an interview with her, that she picked the movie soundtrack to kind of sound like a spaghetti Western. And she even described the... Uh, the musical composer or the you know the person that she worked with on the on the music in the film as an Ennio Morricone esque style. Ennio Morricone did a lot of the soundtracks for a lot of spaghetti westerns, and so yeah, yeah. I just I I love this movie. The soundtrack is great, but this is again I think a wonderful instance of a woman who's writing and directing her own film, who's changing the genre, who's changing the game, and you know she also directs a bunch of episodes of TV. So some of your favorite shows, you know, she's probably directed an episode in the last few years, but she's just fucking cool and has a, such a strong voice. And I again I'm just really taken, even you know six years later, seven years later. I'm really taken by, you know, how actively she pursued doing something that was not the norm. Yeah. I just, I love it. I love that she was just like, I'm doing my fucking thing and you're going to learn about this shit and you're going to just watch this great fucking movie. Yeah. And it's going to make you think about the world that you live in. Man, I got to tell you, this movie was so beautiful, romantic, scary in parts for sure. Mm-hmm. I remember when this movie came out, I had heard so much about it and so much about the director. 
and her being this director that falls in line with sort of the Tarantino aesthetic. Like I, I always had heard that she was being compared to him. Yeah. Which I, I, it's always like an interesting comparison when you say, oh, here's this female director that's being compared to this like very famous male director doing that kind of genre work that he does. Mm-hmm. It's great. I'm, I, I, I feel like a shithead for not having seen it until now, but I'm, again, as I always say, when I, it's like a first watch for me, I'm glad you made me watch it. I'm glad that you put it on our list and it was beautiful. There was like, man, I gotta tell you, <laughs> not, again, not to take it back to Hornyville. <laughs> we gotta put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> it's almost like my film analysis doesn't matter if I take it to Hornyville. Okay. <laughs> Well, we are also changing our own game by making sure that those two things can exist together. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad you said that. Um, but the Arash character. Ugh. I mean, ugh. Arash is so hot. He looks like he's out of a Jim Jarmusch movie. Like, just like oh the God. kind of rockabilly hair and the white shirt with the jeans. I was like, what a fucking cool customer. Like, he was so attractive but in the best way, in that very like stylish, like I said, kind of like a Jim Jarmish yeah. 80s director kind of way, like in those like 80s movies, like the Alex Cox movies or the Jim Jarmish movies. Man, so cool. But he has like a real like modern sensitive sensibility about yeah. him too. So when he starts to deal drugs, for example, you're like, oh no, sweet baby angel, don't deal drugs. <laughs> like, But he's tough and cool and oh my God. So hot. And the actor is named Arash Morandi. Definitely look him up. He's incredible. And I will say this, the actor who plays the pimp, his name is Dominic Reigns. He's also very attractive when he doesn't have that fucking D. Ant Ward mustache and sex tattooed across his neck. <laughs> this is a movie filled to the brim with hot people who might not always be hot in this film, but hey. are hot in real life. <laughs> That's Oscar bait, if you ask me. Completely. Writing sex across your neck will get you the Oscar. The next Merchant Ivory film is going to be like <laughs> Maggie Smith's going to take down her ruffled collar and just going to say sex across her neck tattoo. <laughs> but tattooed in like that old English font because that's all they wrote in back then. <laughs> I can, literally cannot wait for that to happen. I'm so, so stoked on a Maggie Smith House of Pain logo tattoo or whatever she's going to get. <laughs> oh, my God. Such a great choice. Thank you for picking it. I'm so glad I got to see it finally. It's such a wonderful film. I'm so glad you liked it. Oh, I love this movie. Could watch it every day for years and be fine. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Well, how do you feel about talking about my movie? I can't wait to talk about your movie. It has been too long since I've seen it. Yeah. And it just brought back so many emotions and memories. Yeah. I cannot wait. Yeah, no, this I think it's this is going to be a good little double feature here because for the theme of actually it's woman is a movie from 1992. It was written, produced and directed by Leslie Harris and it's called Just Another Girl on the IRT. Lots of folks think Brooklyn girls are real tough. <laughs> 
let nobody mess with me. And I do what I want. Get your, your big belts and your bucket hats ready. Listen. Because we're going back in time. And how cool is it that both of our movies were written and directed by the women who created them? Exactly. We love it. More about that in just a second, yeah. of course. Um, but right off the bat, so... I was in a Googling frenzy, obviously, with these two films because <laughs> I actually did not know what IRT stood for because I did not grow up in New York. Oh, my God, that's right. And they don't really use it anymore. Right. It stands for Interborough Rapid Transit. Yes. Okay. So was that the name of the subway system in New York for a while or how? If I'm remembering correctly, okay. <laughs> there were certain lines that were the IRT. And then I forget what the other line was called. It used to be privately owned. Okay. And then New York City took over the subway system. Oh, gotcha. Okay. So that might have been like the different names for different lines or because they were owned by different companies. Yeah. Okay. But enough about this fucking New York and this train. <laughs> well, it makes sense. <laughs> so the director of this film is Leslie Harris. She's from Cleveland originally. She moved to New York in the early 80s. She started working in advertising and started making commercials pretty quickly after that. However, you know, she really wanted to write screenplays and she started doing these temp jobs and would write screenplays in between her jobs. And I think it's obvious, like, that is such a like a filmmaker's story. And, you know, that whole like, I'm just going to like work on my film in between all this other shit that I have to do in order to stay alive. Hustling. Yeah, totally. Like, there's an interview actually, where she was on Charlie Rose. And basically, she was kind of explaining like, oh, yeah, I would take these jobs. I told them that I couldn't type even though I actually knew how to type because I did not want to write. I just wanted to like answer the phone and do like bullshit at the job so then I could focus all my energy on writing. And I was like, that's really smart, actually. That is a boss move. Yeah. I'm so mad that I never tried that. I know. I was like, good for her. It's like she she was very well aware of where she wanted to put her energy and time. So I think that's awesome. And, you know, she's still in film. I mean, she's still alive, still working. She's taught film at NYU. She's been a film lecturer, you know, at different universities, and she's still in the film business. But this movie is her first and only feature film. Wild. And it has the distinction of being the first film that was directed, written, and produced by a Black woman to win the special jury prize at Sundance. Ooh. Back in the Ooh. old days of 1993. I love that. Oh, and I forgot my movie was also a product of the Sundance Labs. Hey, that's another <laughs> that's another theme that we didn't forget. Maybe somebody will bring it up. <laughs> <laughs> I love that it. it was the first one, though. Yeah, it's it's great. But I want to like sit on this for a brief second because we've discussed the director, Julie Dash, before, who made Daughters of the Dust. Yes. How she was the first Black woman to have national distribution for her feature-length film. Mm -hmm. Guess what? Leslie Harris was the second. Damn. I know. And like I said, I went down this like YouTube poll of watching interviews with Leslie Harris, and there's a lot of great ones where she just talks about how hard it was to get a film made if you were a Black woman in the 1990s, Right. Absolutely. Which is why I think this is Leslie Harris's only feature-length film. And honestly, it just underscores the ideas that we've discussed on previous episodes, which is that 
There's a problem that exists with distribution and with financing for film. And we're always trying to get more and more people that access. Because obviously, for the longest time, it was only like straight, cis, white men who got to make movies, right? But think about that in terms of the ways that that kind of silences creators. Like, it's why women like Leslie Harris, Julie Dash, Kathleen Collins, they should have made tons of films. Absolutely. Like when I hear that, it makes me so angry because I think, all right, cool. It's great that she was able to be a professor and find a way to still work in this industry. But if you compare her career to, say, a cishet man that had an indie film come out in 1993 or 1994, they're all now directing Star Wars and shit like that. Yeah. And it does silence people. And it not only silences the creator, it silences the stories that they could tell. Right that are different from what we see every day. It's really upsetting. Yeah, because it's like what I talked about in Black History Month from last year with Kathleen Collins. Kathleen Collins could have had like the Eric Romer career. Yes. Right? She could have made a shit ton of films, all these like very like, you know, contained indie conversational slice of life movies. Mm -hmm. But she didn't. And why did that happen? And it's the same thing with Leslie Harris. It's not for lack of her not having stories to tell. She has a lot of stories to tell. She wanted to write screenplays. She's like working all night writing screenplays. But yet she couldn't find anybody to help her make a movie after the one that she made. Like that got distributed by Miramax. This film, Just Another Girl in the IRT, was distributed by Miramax. It was at Sundance. It won the special jury prize. Why not? Why did she get to do more? Exactly. And that's just always an interesting question we ask on this podcast, right? Yeah. So um, let me do a one-sentence synopsis of this film. A high school girl living in the projects of New York City threatens her dream of going to college and becoming a doctor by repeated arguments with her teachers and parents and an unexpected pregnancy. Okay, so the star of Just Another Girl on the IRT is Chantal. She is played by Ariane A. Johnson. Fire. Chantal is in high school, and at the beginning of the movie, she works in this shop. Okay, it kind of reminded me of like one of those like good grocery places, like a Zabar's or something like that. Mm -hmm. Because in these few moments when she's working in this shop, you start to get a sense of who Chantal is, right? Because she shows in kind of late. Manager is kind of like, where have you been? She's like, whatever. He's like, well, I got to run out. So you're in charge. And then she's in charge. And this like snooty, rich white lady comes in and starts demanding this like, I I think it was literally like some kind of weird. Oh, you're out of brie and caraway seeds or something like that. (laughs) Some like stupid, expensive food. And it's not in stock. And of course she goes ape shit. She goes full on K mode, Karen mode. And she's basically like ordering Chantal around. And Chantal is like, fuck this. Starts talking back, giving her shit. It's great. It's wonderful. The mouth on this character is unparalleled. I have not seen anything like it since. I know. And see, that's the thing is that you quickly realize that Chantal is like one of these take no prisoners type of gals. Like she's from Brooklyn. She's from the projects. Her parents are still married, but they're both paycheck to paycheck, struggling financially. The dad works at night and sleeps during the day. And, you know, he really wants to move the family out of the neighborhood, but they're just having a hard time scraping up the money. And Mm -hmm. this is what I think makes Chantal have to be a woman 
even though she's still a girl. I mean, yes. honestly, it's that's the thing. It's like being poor kind of instantly makes you an adult when you're a kid. Yeah, you have to take care of your brothers after school. Like, you can't have the life right. that you might want to have because you have to run home and take care of two kids. Just the fact that she's even aware of her parents' financial status is something that makes her have to grow up more. Yeah. Like, I remember when I was a kid and, you know, I was well aware that we didn't have money for extra things, like nothing extraneous. Mm -hmm. And I never knew exactly how much my grandparents made, but I always knew that, like, I was just kind of aware that we were poor. And I think that that just kind of ages you up a little bit because you have more stress and the stress of her parents' carries over to Chantal's life for sure. Yeah. But, you know, in spite of this, I mean, she has really big dreams. And listen, as we mentioned, she's smart. She speaks her mind. She's proudly Black, which I think is a very big component to this film. She does what she wants pretty much always. But she also gets pretty good grades. Like, she's a really good student. And she wants to graduate early. And, you know, like I said, her dream is that she graduates early from high school, goes to college, becomes a doctor. That's what her dream is. And it's looking like she could maybe actually graduate early, but she's not willing to control that mouth, (laughs) which gets her in a lot of trouble with her teachers. Okay. I... Look, I gotta say, I recognize myself in this character <laughs> to a shocking degree. Constantly mouthing off yeah. to my teachers in high school. Yeah. Constantly. It's like a, the easiest form of rebellion. Yeah. And not just in a general, like, fuck you kind of way, but just like a, why aren't we discussing this thing if we're in history class? Like, why aren't we discussing shit that's important to me? Yeah. That's the thing, is that it's the kind of thing where she's not wrong about what she's saying, but she just kind of doesn't know, like, the time and place for it. And you know what I mean? And, like, she's kind of a hothead, but, like, she is not wrong about what she has to say. Totally. Also, in sticking with the theme, there are so many ways in this film, which, you know, I hope we get to talk about, where she is a girl. Like, she's very clearly a girl. And she's just trying, in some of those moments, to be a kid. But she can't help herself. (laughs) Yeah, it's a a real, like, straddle of the line between, like, a grown-up woman's world and a kid's world for her. Because here's the thing. Her life outside of school is, like, a typical teenage girl's life. Like, she hangs out with her friends. She's got this boyfriend named Gerard who she's, like, one foot out the door with this guy all the time. <laughs> like, she's just like, whatever. <laughs> he is here. I'm, I don't care. Whatever. She's obsessed with boys and parties. And, like, her and her friends, she's got this best friend who is actually her co-worker at this, like, Zabar Z type place. Her name is Natet. She's played by Ebony Gerardo. And they are, like, having full-on conversations about what they're going to wear to parties. Yes. You know, they're like, oh, I'm going to wear the sweet jacket with this, like, cool skirt. You know, it's like, I remember being obsessed with that when I was their age. Like, yes. the exact outfit to wear to a party. And that's the only reason you're working in the first place, is to buy the shit you want to buy that your parents won't buy for you. Exactly. And, like, Chantal and Natette are, like, they have this other friend, Denisha. They're trying to convince to come to this party that they're going to this weekend. But Denisha has just had a baby. And it's the kind of thing where they're like, oh, just drop her off at your mom's. It's not a big deal. Drop your baby off with your mom so you can come to this party with us. Right? So it is that we're still kids, We don't understand the full scope of what this is. Our friend has a baby. You know what I mean? Yeah, we don't understand the responsibility that that comes with fully. And they even have like this shockingly funny conversation on a bench about sex. 
and how to avoid pregnancy. And it is still one of the funniest things I've ever seen on screen. It is shockingly misguided. Like the whole thing is really naive. Okay. Because they go into this like realm where they start talking about AIDS and HIV. Okay. Now, this is 1992. A lot of people had a lot of bad information about AIDS and yes. HIV. And, and it was simply because of the lack of any education or information about it at all in the 80s, right? Yeah, like no government response to the fucking crisis. Exactly. So in a way, it doesn't surprise me at all that teenage girls would be saying this shit to each other in 1992. I'm just throwing that out there. But this conversation in general is so like, they just have no idea what they're talking about, right? The tent. Listen. The tent especially. The worst. The the, the worst of them all. And, and this is the thing that I had to remind myself when I rewatched this movie. And this is sort of generally to the vibe of like people who are adults watching teenage things, aka Euphoria, which everyone I know talks about is like shocked by. The thing to remember about Euphoria, if you ever want to dig in, is beneath the shocking glare of the sex lives of children, there's actually a very compelling narrative about Zendaya as a drug addict. And if you just focus on that, you could get through it without wanting to, like, crawl into a fucking ball. But continue. Well, that's the thing, is that it's hard for me to take my, like, adult perspective hat off when I'm watching teenagers making poor decisions, right? Absolutely. Because I have to basically remember, like, I was also, I was having, like, the dumbest, most naive conversations at that age. I had, like, little to no sex education. Yep. (laughs) And I thought the wildest stuff, like, wildest stuff. Like, I swear to God, this is an aside, but I'm going to tell it anyway. I remember once I was, like, in middle school, this, like, older neighbor girl that like lived in the neighborhood i remember she told me once that (laughs) that my period would turn off when i immersed myself in water oh what and i remember i believed that for an embarrassingly long amount of time (laughs) (laughs) like a little faucet a little tap you just (laughs) yeah she was basically like oh you're like your period just shuts off anytime you go into water like if you go swimming or if you go in the bathtub it just turns off and i was like damn wow really that's so crazy how your body just knows how to turn it off and you're like and i just stopped believing that last year (laughs) (laughs) i finally asked my gynecologist on the verge of perimenopause, if that actually is true. <laughs> but that's the thing, is that, like, that's why I'm looking at this movie and ha- and these girls having these conversations with each other, because that was, like, such a thing. It's like, we were all just, like, we yes. all wanted to know what we were talking about. We had no idea what we were talking about. And we were trying to disseminate bad information to other <laughs> girls. It's so situational and geographical, too, because I feel like I had a really good grasp on sex And any of the threats of sex or the joys of sex, because I lived in a town that was pretty wealthy and has high taxes. And we had a health class. Like, we had health throughout middle school and high school. It was available to you. And I also grew up with my grandmother, and I would watch the fucking news with her every night. And the AIDS crisis was real, and we talked about it constantly Like, well, these are the ways that it's transmitted, and you shouldn't be afraid to hug people that have... Like, we just constantly talked about the realities of that. But if you grew up in a place where there's no health education, where this astonished me, because I'm like, why are there so many people 
who are like 10, 15 years younger than us that really have still no idea about sex stuff. And it's because they grew up in these small towns that had no education at all, or even worse, they had that fucking George W. Bush, like global gag rule kind of (laughs) sex education that was basically like, it all sucks, you're going to die. Like it's shocking still how many people don't have information about this. So to see that scene on the bench, it just really brought me back to a time when it's like you're trying your hardest to know things about the world and protect yourself, but you're also in that weird time where you're not going to go to an adult yeah. to ask any of these questions. And there was no internet, and you can't just go to a library and maybe look up some of this stuff. So yeah, just it just brought me back like to a very specific time of life where, like, like you said, misinformation was rampant. My grandmother, for example, firmly believed that if I used tampons, I wouldn't be a virgin. Huh. Yeah. So, like, tampons were banned in my house. Heard that. Heard that so often. And that's, like, a a cultural thing as well as an age thing. But I'm, like, misinformation coming from your own damn house. (laughs) It was everywhere, for sure. Those scenes in particular were just sort of, like, really brought it back to that place. But... Yeah. So Chantal and her friends, you know, they they attend this party. Denisha shows up to the party. I guess she dropped her kid off at her mom's. <laughs> but Chantal meets this guy there named Tyrone and falls in love with him pretty much instantly because he has a car. <laughs> That's it. That's all it takes. He has a Jeep. She does not have to be another girl on the IRT. She can get rides. And that is all she wrote. All she wrote. So she starts hanging out with him all the time. They start sleeping together, and eventually, wouldn't you know, she finds out that she's pregnant. Okay. That scene was distressing because you're watching her beg him to use a condom. Yeah. And him coercing her into not using one. So she's trying to use the information she has, but she hasn't learned that other part, which is, you know, no means no, and you can stop if you want to, and even if they insist. Like, she, there's just so much missing information, but you see her being smart, and then just being a hormonal teenager, and it happens. Yeah. And I will say this. So, like, from this point forward, this is where the movie kind of takes a little bit of a darker turn. Oh, it gets dark as shit. Yeah. It's basically that Chantal's life becomes way more serious and complicated. And if you haven't seen the film and you're watching it, you're thinking about watching it, you know, I think I think certain people would be shocked by some of the things that happened in the last half of this film. I mean, I certainly was when I first saw it. Mm-hmm. It's not the Juno thing where the character <laughs> is pregnant and she has this like existential aha moment or like, you know, it's like her goofy best friend guy next door is going to just deal with it with her, you know. And and that's the thing is that I'm not sure I want to give any more information about what happens at this point because it's powerful and very intense and I, and I just would love everybody to watch it and formulate an opinion on it. But the thing that I will say is that I think it's a perspective that you just rarely see in movies because Chantal in these scenes, she's not always doing the right thing quote unquote right but i love that leslie harris is like choosing to do something different in that moment right Mm -hmm. it's more raw it's more honest she's showing that it's just not this like simple question of like is she gonna be a good girl or she gonna be a bad girl like it's way more nuanced than that and 
from everything that I did read and watch with Leslie Harris when I was prepping for this episode, I mean, she said that this was the point. She wanted it to be this way. She was trying to make a coming-of-age movie about a teenage girl that was real, and it wasn't this, like, typical feel-good Hollywood bullshit. And I just think it's a creative triumph for her when she finally, at the end of it, like, when it all plays out. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's something that we don't ever rarely see, and I think it's very unique. I completely agree. And it's it's like I was saying before with, you know, we were discussing A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, that kids are kids everywhere. Like, kids are going to be kids. And it's not as easy to say, well, this one's good and that one's bad. Or this one makes good decisions and that one makes bad decisions. I think this goes back to last week's films, too. And just sort of like the thing that we talk about on this podcast when it comes to female directors and something that I certainly enjoy about watching movies made by women is that showing female characters that are complicated and nuanced and it's not perfect and it's not like their goals aren't like I'm going to be really really good or be really really bad it's like this gray area in between where they're not making they're sometimes making good decisions and other times not and I Mm -hmm. love that I love like as a woman looking and seeing that play out on screen and knowing that Maybe it's okay to be messy and complicated and I don't have to be perfect. I mean, that's just everything that we love about these films. And I think that that's the best part about doing these episodes with these films that we chose is that like in your film, it's complicated. She's an anti-hero. She's killing people, but she's also maybe doing it for a good reason sometimes. There's a teenage girl who is trying to, you know, get to college, but she has a little hiccup. And how does she, you know, manage all of it? And so that's what we need is more nuanced stories of women. And I'm hoping that we're getting more and more of them, obviously, I think in modern times. Yeah. But it wasn't that long ago. No, actually, when you would see movies about women and female characters that were like really one sided. Oh, completely. And you can actually track the progression of like a movie that was made like in the Hollywood studio system in the classic Hollywood system where it was like a woman is truly perfect at the end of the movie. Right. And you're just like, holy shit. Like, (laughs) how did that happen? How do you aspire to that? That's crazy. How does that happen? And yeah, I think, I, I mean, I agree with you completely. And I think it's also to kind of dial it down a little bit. It's kind of like, I like watching movies about women who don't have a fucking plan. Yeah. And don't have anything that they're aspiring to, but also still want to just kind of be who they are. And, you know, in both of our films, I think we haven't talked too much about like a feminist angle, but I think it's because it's it's unsaid that of course these are feminist films. And of course these are films that are putting a different spin on what feminism is and what it means from these different narrative perspectives. Like you've got two women, two girls from totally different parts of the world who are experiencing their femininity in different ways, who are experiencing like how the outside world treats them, what their own interior lives are. Yeah, I just, I love it. And I loved, I just love this movie for so many reasons, but I think that it's just really masterful at, it kind of feels like the kind of movie that felt like what it was really like to be a teenage girl. Yeah. And that's a rarity for me to feel that. Yeah. Like you said, in the Juno sort of movies with the supportive parents and everything's cool and, you know, just just has a different spin, different flavor to it that I really appreciate. Yeah, because at the end of the day, a lot of times being a teenager is experiencing a lot of emotions alone. Yes. Because you're afraid to talk to people. You're afraid to 
tell your parents of what's going on and so much about like disappointing people or making people mad or, you know, and so a lot of times you have to have things in secret and it's rare that we get to see that. And that's what I like about this movie is that we're actually seeing kind of like a real thing of a teenager kind of going through this hard time and, you know, having to kind of bear it a lot by herself. Yeah. So... Oh, God, I couldn't agree more. And I don't, did you get the feeling when you were a teenager? Because I always had this thought process, and I don't know if it was true for everyone or just true of how I grew up, but it was always drilled into me that, like, you could make a decision now that will negatively affect your whole life. So it made everything feel a lot more fraught than it needed to be. (laughs) Like, you kind of remove someone's chance to be a kid when you start laying on them this heaviness of, one thing you do now will always be a problem for you or will follow you or will ruin your chances. Like, that is a fucked up kind of way to live. I completely agree. That was the pressure of that was so intense in middle school, but especially high school. And yeah, it's it's weird. And I don't know what the instinct was there. Like, I don't know if it's like, yeah. we must like overdo it so that they can maybe course correct at some point. Like, right. it's not this intense all the time, but if we tell them it's intense up front, then maybe they'll be scared into doing the right thing or whatever. I don't know. I don't know if that's like the proper way to do things. Again, I'm not a parent, so I don't really know. <laughs> but all I know is that I was fucking terrified every single second of being a kid. Yeah. So-, <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. Take that as as you will. <laughs> I mean, like, I was scared to the point where I'm like, if I go to a party, my life's fucked. <laughs> like, just going to a party felt like an ex- extreme situation to me. <laughs> I mean, I'm always like a complete paranoid freak for everything but man it was really really leveled up when i was a kid i just thought every everything that happened was gonna have this like insane consequence that was gonna alter the rest of my life and i don't know sometimes you do skip school and nothing happens let me tell you as a successful woman in her mid-40s nobody cares about your regents exams nobody cares about how many days you're absent from school and to be real I have never gotten a job where they have looked at or given a shit about my college transcripts. I mean, stay in school, but also, you're right. I actually never think about that. I never think about my GPA. Like, I can't even remember what my GPA is, honestly. Nobody gives a shit. You don't even give a shit anymore. (laughs) I don't know what it is. The things that were, like, told to us that would be terrifying, life-ruining things so that we should do this other stuff, nobody cares about the other stuff either. So find the healthy middle (laughs) between being, like, a disaster and a paranoid freak. Couldn't have said it any better myself. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Oh, what a great episode. I love these films. I love celebrating women in film. I just, I love movies. Yes, me too. You know, come to think of it, me too. Um... (laughs) <laughs> Listen, if you've been enjoying these episodes, I know we, you know, we came off of Black History Month and kind of rolled into, you know, Women's History Month. And hopefully we've had some conversations that y'all can chew on. And if you have any thoughts, please email us at I saw what you did pot at gmail.com. And also, too, if you want to send us questions for bonus episodes, we love stories that you tell us. We would love to hear more. So please do that. I saw what you did pot at gmail. And you can also find us on our social media. We are at Pod on Instagram and Twitter, where you can guess our themes and see if you're right. Tune in to see if you're right every week. That's correct. Also, if you would like merch, we have some in the Exactly Right shop at exactlyrightmedia.com. And if you want even more from us, 
We've got a whole bunch of bonus episodes up at Stitcher Premium exclusively, and you can use the promo code SAW for a free month. Awesome. Well, Danielle, please, if you wouldn't mind, why don't you tell the fine folks about our movies for next week? I would love to. And... <laughs> ah! Sorry. I just... I just read the theme. I just saw the theme. <laughs> I just saw the theme. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to get it together because our, our movies for next week are Big from 1988 and 13 Going on 30 from 2004. Holy shit. And I cannot wait for you to guess the theme. Everyone's going to flatline next week watching those movies. That's how huge those movies are. Oh my God. Enjoy. Enjoy watching them. Come on back and listen to us talk about them. And thank you so much for this episode, Millie. I love talking to you about this stuff. Thank you for being you. And thanks to everybody for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye. This has been an Exactly Right production. Our producer is Alexa Samorosi. Our engineer is Ryo Baum. Our theme song is by Tom Breifogel. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstart, Karen Kilgareth, and Danielle Kramer. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at ISawPod. You can email us at ISawWhatYouDidPod at Gmail. And please don't forget to listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. <laughs>